Welcome to the 905er podcast. My name is Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. When the chapter for 2020 is written in future history books, there's not much doubt about what will take up most of the pages. It's difficult to think of many stories this year that don't come back to COVID-19. And yet, life continues. Pandemic or no pandemic, we need to reconcile as a country with the crimes of the past. COVID-19 didn't halt the need for justice and progress in our relations with Canada's First Nations. Last year, it was the Wet'suwet'en people's struggle to determine if a pipeline should be built on their land or not. Currently, the Mi'kmaq people in Nova Scotia are trying to defend their treaty rights to a moderate living as lobster fishermen. These stories all have at their core the same themes about how our nation, which was founded on the laws, priorities and beliefs brought to this continent by European colonisers between the 16th and 20th century, treats people of other races. About how the people we entrust with enforcing peace, order and good government go about their business and whether every person in Canada can have equal trust in the institutions that put that government into effect. One of those stories is being written right now on the fields between the town of Caledonia and the Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve, about 15 minutes south of Hamilton. The original dispute, which began in 2005, appeared to have reached a resolution in 2006 when the province simply bought the land from the developers. Now this summer, a second dispute has erupted over a new proposed development located across the road from the site of the original dispute. We wanted to learn more about the background to this dispute, fully acknowledging the details about the rights and claims surrounding this land dispute date back hundreds of years and are not something we're qualified to comment on. So we approached two journalists who have been deeply involved in covering this dispute, who are also members of First Nations communities in the Niagara region. Sean van der Klees and Carl Dockstadter are hosts of the One Dish, One Mic radio show on AM 610 CKTN each Sunday. They were both awarded the 2020 CJF CBC Indigenous Journalism Fellowships, which aim to support Indigenous voices and a better understanding of Indigenous issues. Yet, in the midst of this recognition for the quality of their work, Carl received a phone call out of the blue telling him that he was to be arrested for being present on the site of the dispute illegally. That's right, the OPP had decided to arrest a journalist. Our conversation with Sean and Carl is one of the most fascinating we've had yet, and one of the major benefits of this podcast format. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Thanks, Sean and Carl, for joining us today. One of the main reasons we we asked you to come onto the podcast is just in recognition of our own lack of knowledge, and I suspect many of our listeners, about the details behind the various Caledonia land disputes and the current dispute at 1492 Landback Lane. I know this is asking a lot, but could you give us something of a kind of for dummies introduction to why these disputes have arisen over lands around Caledonia? In the simplest terms, the uh, indigenous people, the Haudenosaunee people were, were promised land by the imperial crown. And this happened centuries ago. And, and in the century since that land was promised through a series of, of thefts and unpaid land deals, squatters uh, and a bunch of other disputed mechanisms the land rights of of the Haudenosaunee people have been eroded from the entire length of the Grand River uh, six miles on either side or 10 kilometers on either side of the Grand River uh, basically from from the headwaters like all the way up in the Kitchener Waterloo area all the way down to Dunville was all territory that was promised to the Six Nations people and over the course of several generations that that territory has been taken from, from the Six Nations people what has really shifted in our generation, though, is that there was a direct action to attempt to stop 
the encroachment of the seemingly endless urban sprawl of Canadian society onto the doorstep of, of the Six Nations people. And in 2006, at the Douglas Creek Reclamation, there seemed to be a tentative halting of development and encroachment in the Haldeman territories, uh, the Haldeman Tract territories in the Haudenosaunee lands. Uh, but in, in 2020, that, that looks to be ramping back up. So Mackenzie Meadows has become this area where land defenders all the way back on July 19th moved on to the area to stop the development. But it also seems to be this symbolic development now that, that represents the goals of the non-Indigenous leadership in, in the area. And that also represents the um, asserting of rights by the Indigenous people in this, in this territory. So that's, that's how that all started. So I just want to make a, a distinction there that because when our listeners are hearing the word Caledonia, they're thinking of one long dispute that's been happening since about 2006. And if I'm not mistaken, we're actually talking about two separate land disputes. One started in 2006 with the Douglas Creek uh, development. And then the one that's happening at 1492 Landback Lane is a separate, distinct development that the, the Six Nations are opposing. Do I have that correct? Yeah, they're separate. They just, they happen to be, they happen to be right across the street from, from one another. Um, so the underlying issues are pretty much the same, but they're, yeah, in 2006, it was the Douglas Creek development that was planned and it was re-claimed uh, as Gunastadu. And now in 2020, there was a Mackenzie Meadows development planned by Lozani Homes that has now been reclaimed as 1492 Landback Lane. So I'm going to be going to play the white guy here. I'm curious to know, if I was if I was a developer, I'm going to give benefit of the doubt to the 2006 incident and say maybe they didn't know the the history there. They started uh, construction there, and that turned into what we all know is what happened in Caledonia. And this time, there's a development right across the road. Why wouldn't the developer go to the Six Nations and say, "Listen, we want to develop this. Do you have a claim to this land? Because like, we don't we don't want to repeat what happened before." Why wasn't like a full consultation with the Six Nations people done just to prevent another crisis that might have happened? It, it's fair to say that they, to give the benefit, developer the benefit of the doubt, that they attempted to to consult with Six Nations. the The issue with a lot of Indigenous communities is that our leadership is is often. Um, often questionable if you will like so within six nations themselves they have a hereditary system they have a chief and council system or they have a, a Haudenosaunee confederacy system that is 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 done by the people for the people type thing and they also have an elected band council system that is in place um the elected band council came into place in around the 1920s and it was literally gun in hand that removed their traditional council and imposed this council so the federal government and most legislative bodies, as well as most businesses, recognize them as as the voice of the people and as the people as the as the power of the people. Um, but what we what we've since learned is that in the last election that occurred, only four percent of the population made the decision to show up and and voice voice their uh, approval for for the current leadership itself. Um, so. There's a there's a bit of a dispute as to who you should be talking to, and that that seems to be a common thread amongst or a common theme amongst 
almost any indigenous uh, land reclamation site that we're seeing across across Canada right now. Um, and this isn't to say that one system is better than others, right? There are examples of where a, an elected band council works. Like my reserve, we, we work fine with an elected band council. But Six Nations, where they have have historically had this council in place, had their chief, uh, their confederacy in place for the last 1,300 years um, prior to the United States, prior to the country of Canada, parts of the United States Constitution, the distributions of powers upon the uh, uh, the state, the, um, the individual states in America are based on the, con- the, the structure of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Um, so for the Haudenosaunee people, uh, it, it's it's about their ability to choose their own leadership. Um, so to a long-winded answer is is they in their eyes to give the benef- the developers the benefit of the doubt they did consult with uh, with the band council itself. The band council then did hold a event to consult the community, and the community said no. Um, but they still made the decision to to uh, to proceed with it. But again, like th- that also isn't clear itself too, because what we have historically known um, is that with or without consultation, usually developments happen, right? So for to to kind of take the pressure off the band council, what the band council is in my in my head, what the band council probably thought is, well, even if we don't approve this, this is still going to happen. So because this is still going to happen, we might as well take the $300,000 um, that was given. And that's another thing to note is that that they were given around $330,000 for for this for the purchase of the land. Um, and the, one of the houses that they're selling is like $400,000. So they 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 sold all, they they were given $300,000 and they couldn't even they can't even use that money to purchase a house on a land that was just transferred to them, right? And ironically, there are so many parallels of kind of the history of the First Nations in Canada and North America of people coming and offering you something small and then taking something vast. <laughs> you know, it, there's a kind of horrible irony there in a way. And I think it's a really important point because this is used as a way, I know uh, CBC interviews during the whole wet Suetan uh, dispute kept on harping on the, but didn't the elected people say this, didn't the elected people say that? And again, even that, it seems to me, is taking a very Western Eurocentric kind of view of things and denying the fact that of a sovereign people making their own judgment about how they run their government and their affairs. And, and that's another point, too, is, 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 is why is it that Indigenous people as a whole aren't able to have a disagreement with our own governments? Right? Why is it that our protests are only valid when, it, when it's from the perspective of an elected council or a formalized body? Canadians protest all the time in, in disagreement with their government, right? But, but Indigenous people, the, 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 the only validity that's ever given to Indigenous people is when it's done from, a, from, a, from an organized perspective, from a governmental perspective, right? Um, apparently, we need unanimous consent in order to, to disagree, well, if, going on my note about the consultation, I'm thinking literally my own backyard. I live down by the QEW. There's talk of redesigning, expanding the highway there to accommodate more traffic. Well, they reached out to all the people who lived along that highway 
They didn't go. They didn't just go and talk to the, the, our municipality, our elected officials, and say, "Can you give us permission?" They went and talked to us. I could go out and consult with them about the noise violation, the risk of of expanding it onto our property. It was a, a, an effort on the developer part to reach out to me to get my input and get my buy in on the project. And I find it interesting that they're not even offering me; they're just letting me know. But for the dispute over who owns the land, that kind of effort doesn't seem to be put forward to the Six Nations people, not just an elected band, but the actual people to say, listen, how, how do we do this? That we can all walk away happy. And I find that contradiction is uh, something that nobody really looks at these days. Yeah, and I, I think that's the sort of irony of the situation. The After things escalated most recently, resulting in, in road closures in, in Caledonia and on Plank Road itself, which is a totally separate so uh, totally separate historical land claim from the Oneida Township land claim that 1492 Landback Lane is on. Um, after, after the escalation, I actually was just working on another article where I quoted the premier of Ontario and, and Doug Ford said in a press conference that the way you get things settled is you sit around a table talking about solutions. You, you don't go after police. But, but I just found that to be so ironic yeah, because we, yeah. we've just come off a summer of racial reckoning where more people have taken direct action by flooding the streets all across Turtle Island, including in, in Canada, including in, in my hometown of Niagara Falls, where thousands of people flooded the street and, and said we need to do something about racism. The thing they said is we need less police and the premier went and hired 200 more OPP officers is happy to let police deal with the situation that, that even the police themselves say it doesn't require the blunt force solution of, of the police and, and not to sit down around a table. Like there, there is no table. Ask, ask the land defenders. They're like, where's this table that, that people get to sit around and discuss the solution to there. It's, it's, pretty hard to get at but but i guess that's the answer it's it's very confusing messaging from from the province uh and then no messaging from the federal government which is another element that they announced in august that they were going to come and sit down with the elected council and with the traditional Haudenosaunee governance and and there not, nothing has happened like i've emailed them a bunch of times for one dish one mic and i get very similar emails with this sort of vague i mean i can read it to you if you want no please do but it's yeah. this sort of vague explanation of like something will happen I, i'm curious yeah actually i have it right here so so I'll, I'll tell you the the direct question i asked is will there be any direct intervention from from your office i i wrote to carolyn bennett in regards to the conflict in haldeman between land defenders and developers and their advocates and and i'll read you the whole answer uh carolyn bennett's uh, press secretary emily williams wrote me back on behalf of her office and said we believe the best way to resolve outstanding issues is through a respectful and collaborative dialogue which is vital to building stronger relationships and advancing reconciliation with Indigenous partners for the benefit of their communities and all Canadians. Canada deeply values its relationship with Six Nations and is committed to continuing the work collaboratively to address Six Nations' historical claims and land right issues. There has been a consistent effort by Canada, Ontario, and Six Nations to address Six Nations' claims through dialogue, and we have put in place flexible processes to allow for the exploration of new ways to achieve this goal. We are actively working with the community and look forward to meeting at the earliest opportunity. Our government has been working with First Nations communities across the country to rebuild our relationship based on the affirmation of rights, respect, cooperation, and partnership. End quote. 
That's a long way to say, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely nothing. Joel and I both have, in Joel's case, more in the dim and distant past, my own case, slightly more recent history, have been involved with kind of provincial politics and stuff uh, and federal politics. And this is sort of the very familiar way of how do we get rid of this guy without seeming not to answer? Well, you know that, but I mean, it's just offensive, really, isn't it? It's like the thousand word non answer. When all you're asking for is, is for someone, literally, sit down around the table is something everybody's open to, and yet no one will actually come to the table to sit down. It must be very infuriating. On the sort of separate, in some ways, equally important story connected with this, Carl, is, is your own story in that you're a professional journalist and you've been covering this through your podcast, One Dish, One Mic, and also in many other uh, places as well. And you were charged a few weeks ago now by the OPP, well, back in August, I think, is that right, for being present at 1492 Landbank Lane. What was their justification for arresting, for charging a journalist? I'm not sure if they arrested you, but they charged you. I did. I did technically get arrested. Um, it was it was cordial uh, to, for, for an arrest, anyways. Uh, but uh, no, they they formally let me know that they're going to charge me. I honestly thought it was a mistake, uh, an oversight. I I mean, I was there. Uh, I brought I brought the information that I needed to easily identify myself as a journalist. Took precautions before I went and wrote the story. But but after the week where where I immersed myself embedded with the leadership of Landback Lane, yeah, I was contacted by the police, and they told me that they were going to charge me. Um, I had had an interaction that week with two police officers where I presented them with my card, with the phone number of the uh, station, uh, our, our program manager at the station that, that hosts our radio show, uh, and, and everything seemed fine. They, they gave me the information of Rod LeClaire, the officer who's, who's doing the press for the OPP or who was doing the press at that time. And so I sort of thought everything was was honky dory. Everything had been clarified, and then and then I left on a Saturday, August 29th. and then on September first, I was contacted by the police, and the officer said, um, "You need to turn yourself in." I said, "No, basically, like I, you know, this is a mistake. I'm I'm a journalist," and the officer said, "Well, you can present your evidence when we meet." <laughs> and as soon as she said evidence, like a ding, a light went off. And I'm like, oh man, I they're they're gonna they're gonna make these charges stick no matter what. Like they've made up their mind that they're pressing charges. I I've had enough interaction with the police to know. I before that happened, I was just gonna go and turn myself in, um, or, or try and talk my way out of it, I guess. And mm-hmm. thank goodness, other members of the media that I spoke with, they they provided me counsel uh, after I talked to the police, and they said, "Do not go into the police station alone." And and I know, being an Indigenous man myself, working in a friendship center, working in community, I know that that when Indigenous people and police are alone, the outcome is hardly ever positive for Indigenous people. And as a matter of fact, the outcome can can be life changing. Uh, and and even honestly, interactions with police have have resulted in in the death of nine people in in 2020. So uh, it, it can be lethal. Since you, you were talking about police behavior, I wanted to just maybe take a step back and kind of look at it like a 10,000 foot level here. First Nations treaty rights have been in the news a lot in the last few months. On the East Coast, we had uh, the Mi'kmaq people looking out to preserve their treaty rights to preserve the, the lobster fisheries. And then the RCMP standing by while a lobster fishery owned by the people were was mysteriously burned to the ground. A chief was assaulted, and the RCMP says that they're just looking to preserve the peace and hearing both sides. But then here in Ontario, the OPP 
are seen enforcing a court order injunction to remove the you know, Six Nations members who are on the development protesting it. They're going in using rubber bullets to clear the land. And I'm wondering, can you comment on this thing, like disparate use of police force against Indigenous peoples? Why is it okay to stand back on the East Coast, yet uh, here in Ontario, it's okay for the OPP to come in, push people off the land? Uh, when essentially it's it, in the First Nations people, they're looking at it as enforcing treaty rights. There doesn't seem to be an equal policy. I'm wondering, is it, use, is it just a different police force, different policy? Um, your comments or your observations there would be great. Well, Indigenous people have historically been over-policed and underserved, right? So in, in communities where we would traditionally live, let's say in an urban environment, you will always see the police there. Always. The police are always patrolling the neighborhoods, right? Solving those broken glass crimes. But when it comes to actual assistance to Indigenous people, they are very few and far between. And I think this is just a, the standard example of, of how Indigenous people... Um, our perception on, on law enforcement is, is, is not a positive one, right? Um, and I think what we're seeing now is it reaffirms our beliefs and reaffirms our, our perception on that. Um, it's, it's, to me, to me, it, it, one of the problems is, is, is the use of the language, like one law, right? Like, and, and that's it. Like there's this one law that, that, uh, Premier Doug Ford likes to use all the time and the rule of law that, uh, uh that, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau likes to use all the time. But again, it's it, the rule of law is only applicable if you actually enforce it. And when you enforce it, right, there's there's this level of subjectivity that comes to comes into play. And this is what we're seeing right now is 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 in the East Coast, a non-Indigenous, visibly white-looking gentleman has the ability of putting his hands on a female RCMP officer, and this gentleman gets warned, right? Whereas Carl, a journalist who is covering a story, um, maybe he's guilty of playing lacrosse. Fair, we'll we'll we'll, we'll conclude that. Um, but he gets he gets charged and arrested, right? They, there's other examples of where they picked up women from the community, took them 30, 30 kilometers away from the town into the uh, OPP headquarters, and then just left her there, right? So this girl, after being arrested, this journalist, after being arrested, like stormed out, walked off and realized that, hey, as an indigenous woman, I probably shouldn't be walking down this road that's about to be really dark really soon. Keep in mind that the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Report was just published uh, a year ago, and the federal government was supposed to develop an action plan, and unfortunately they haven't yet to release that action plan because of COVID, apparently. So yeah, again, long-winded answer to say yeah, there there is a discrepancy in the, in the use of law when it comes to Indigenous people, and we are again often over-policed but underserved. And I think just uh, speaking for myself, as I came to Canada in two thousand and three from Britain. <laughs> Whenever I travel around the world, I'm immediately made aware of all the things that my birth nation has done that it needs to be deeply ashamed of. When I came to Canada, it felt like moving to a country that didn't have so many things to apologize for. And actually, this the events this year, just the contrast between what's happening in Nova Scotia and what's happening in Ontario, has really sh shaken me. This It's like, 
how can this not be just front page news? How is the federal government managing to kind of wash their hands of this and, and treat it like it's not their problem? If you just compare these two things, the kind of hypocrisy in the difference of approach is staggering to me. And I think it's important that the Canadians kind of pay attention, you know. Um, and I think, to, you know, in many ways, you guys are, are much more kind of reasonable and balanced about this. And I think you need to be. Because <laughs> it's like, wow, this is terrible. You know? uh, very often I make statements that don't end with a question. So, but feel free to chip in on that. <laughs> well, one of the things that, like, one of the things that we need to be mindful of is the, is the use of media. Media, right, and what we're seeing now is this rise of independent media, independent media like One Dish, One Mic, and independent media like like your podcast itself. Um, and but as times have passed, it seems that with the push of independent media, mainstream media is obligated to cover these events now, right? With the pressures of Carl calling out uh, the Hamilton Spectator and, and <laughs> us jumping on APN, um, yelling at them and CBC and so on and so forth. Now they're obligated to call it out. But another thing to consider too is that anytime uh, the Canadian government has arrested a journalist or has, has a Taken, taken, uh, taken exception to journalism in in the sense of covering topics is when it's been specific to Indigenous people. The last three or four journal, three of four journalists who have been arrested for doing their job have been Indigenous. The only time the person wasn't Indigenous, but he was still covering an Indigenous story. So when it comes to the the coverage of our stories and the, the events that are happening in our communities, the I mean, to me, it's clear that <laughs> they don't want it out, right? And if you look at what's happening with Sultan, there's this no, no fly zone, there's no coverage zone that did exist that prevented media from properly recording. Since you brought up the coverage of media, especially on this story in Caledonia, the mayor of Haldeman County, Ken Hewitt, always turned to by local media to get his perspective on the issues. And he said in the media, and we're going to quote him here, uh, First Nations people can't just assume that they can step on land and take it, regardless of the fact that that seems entirely tone deaf to the situation at hand. The one thing that I don't think has really been emphasized in these articles is that, if I'm not mistaken, he has bought property on the, the development in question. Is that correct? Yeah, so it did. It did come out thanks to the stellar reporting of of Brendan Kennedy of the Toronto Star, who just asked, <laughs> and maybe was the first reporter to think to ask, like, "Hey, you seem really strongly invested in this. Is there a reason?" And then <laughs> the mayor's like, "Oh yeah, well, I bought my kids a place." Uh, and then we have we have unverified information that that he actually had an interest in in two of the 176 or so homes that that were there. Uh, we also have unverified information that, that he was able to get his deposit back and that there, there will be, um, th this is not something that, that one dish one might can easily do. Uh, but if no other media outlet picks up on it, I mean, there, someone needs to be asking a few more questions about, did you declare a conflict of interest? Is this a conflict of interest? Does, does this need, does an ombudsman need to be involved? Does it stem from a citizen complaint? Like what's, what's the process here? So yeah, this, this guy has been asking for the arrest of family members of Skylar Williams. Like I just, we just republished the letters um, that the Yellowhead Institute posted from from Skyler and Gossineo Williams' three children this this morning. They're they're like eighteen year old, fourteen year old, and sixteen year old child who go to the high school across the street from the ad hoc police station that's that's been set up while the mayor is cheerleading for the arrests of family members while the police board is is calling Haudenosaunee people 
terrorists. Uh, and then, yeah, the mayor, the mayor seems to have some undeclared conflicts that, that I would love to see cleared up. I, I was just thinking like, this sounds so much like something out of a bad Western movie. <laughs> you know, you have the mayor come in and I'm just preserving the peace here, but he's secretly trying to kick out the people who are there so he can build his big motel or the, the big train station or his, you know, his, his big mansion. It's like, this sounds like it should be part of a bad movie <laughs> than real life. And I, I don't understand how at the minute that you say he has financial interests in the development, it completely, in my opinion, skews the context of the interview and excuse his input into the story. It's no longer the impartial interest of I'm looking out for a constituency that is affected here. It is, no, I have a personal stake in it. I am personally benefiting from this development. That should be in every story brought up from now on. We follow councillors, or I follow councillors, where I live in Burlington and in Hamilton. Councillors recuse themselves over far less than this, far, far less than this. You know, having a grandparent who lives near to a development is enough for a councillor to recuse himself or herself. To actually be in the process of purchasing property is way over the line of what counts as a financial interest in, in something. So it's really shocking. And he's making these statements as mayor of Haldimand. I read yesterday one of the statements on the Haldimand County uh, website, which is very strongly worded, signed by him on official note paper. You know, it's not like he's doing this outside and saying it as an individual and not as mayor. It's, again, I mean, I, I suspect if a councillor did this in Burlington with regard to a housing estate, they would be in deep trouble. But I suspect it won't be the case up there because, again, these kind of double standards that exist. Do you think that's a fair understanding? I think, yeah, that's definitely the case. Like, he's he's often considered the people's mayor, right? He's uh, His popularity is reminiscent of of, uh, of uh, Rob Ford in Toronto and now Doug Ford, the premier, right? Um, and unless, if we, we would need to do a deep dive into the process itself, but unless citizens of Caledonia actually make that official complaint, we don't think that anything could happen to him, right? And there, there's video that's circulating right now about him attempting to start a... I, want, I don't want to say a riot, but start an altercation that dates back to 2006 in the Douglas Creek Estates, right? Where he was clearly attempting to to at least initiate a fight amongst the two different groups. And since then, he's ro- rose to popular. He's rose to fame, and and his his current status as as the people's mayor of of the Holloman County. And I presume, that, sadly, the attitude of the average Canadians who live in the county is very polarized. I'm sure. Is that true? So I, I spoke to uh, Caledonians the last uh, wow it's been it's been a week and a day uh, but last August twenty second I was there on location when when Argyle Street was being shut down and uh, I was witness to uh, both I was sitting with community members while the judge made the ruling earlier in the day closing the door to dialogue and then I was there while the the way the way that I interpreted it when I wrote the article for one dish one mic was that since the court was not willing to hear these six nations people they found other ways to to be heard um, 
So, but I was there with them for, for the bulk of, of what was happening, documenting, writing, uh, journalism, you know, in case the cops ask, I have my notepad out and my camera out. I wasn't, I wasn't like enjoying it or anything because I don't want to get rearrested. Um, but I, I was there documenting, but actually I went and I was on my way out and, and I, I was actually a little nervous to cross the police line, but, but I built up the courage to go back across the police line where, where it happened to be parked. And uh, I was taking a picture of the police and a couple, a couple residents of Caledonia, they started to like yell these questions at me. And basically they were like demanding answers. They're like, okay, well you're visibly indigenous and you just came from there. So, so you must be one of them. And they started to ask me these questions and, and I actually turned on my camera. I said, Hey, do you mind if I, do you mind if I grab, you know, if you have something to say, do you want to say it on the record? And so a couple of members sort of shouted their, their opinions at me on the record. Uh, and, and it was frustration. It was, you know, how do you, how do you expect us to have a dialogue when you're shutting our things down? Uh, and, and, uh, when you're just taking the land and, and again, I'm laughing at how rich it is that, that indigenous people, you know, are, take this one plot of land and it's like, Oh, how could you just take land from somebody? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. so, but anyways, we, so I recorded them, but then, but then we talked afterwards. So, so I shut off the, the tape and we had a real conversation and I actually like, I was like, first off, this isn't really my job. Like, I'm I'm a reporter here. Like, you don't have anybody you can get these direct answers from. And they're, like Sean just said, the, he's the people's mayor, Ken Hewitt. And they're like, well, he's standing up for us. And I said, yeah, but but read what they're saying in in the articles about the other side of what's happening. He's saying all these things, and he's driving he's driving a wedge between between your community and the people of six nations. And actually like most people in six nations, they love Caledonia. They frequent Caledonia businesses. They have friendships with Caledonians and, and many people in, in Caledonia. Again, they, you know, they go to the res to get, to get their smokes and gas and, and uh, you know, hopefully pop in at Erlins for some corn soup or, or whatever. Uh, but then it is the, the leaders that are polarizing this thing. Uh, but the last thing I'll, I'll uh, seize on is that it, it's been very consistent. And whether it's Ken Hewitt or whether it's these people that I've talked to, they've said, like, where is the federal government in all this? Like, everybody knows now that this is a nation to nation relationship. And and the federal government is, is you know, giving vague lines about how Canada deeply values its relationship or they've been working on reconciliation and, and blah, 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 blah is what people are hearing. We keep hearing the phrase, oh, we need to work on reconciliation with our First Nations. And it's one of those things that I think it's slowly becoming more and more a hollow statement, whether it's being said at the provincial or federal level. Because I think true reconciliation means you have to sit down and look at the historical injustices that have been done on behalf of the Canadian people to First Nations people. There's no way of sugarcoating it, and I can't justify it in any shape, way, or form. I don't know how we can move ahead as a country. First Nations, white people, immigrants, provinces and territories move forward into the 21st century without reconciling where we've been in the past to know where we where we want to go together in the future. I don't know. It's going to be a long, difficult journey. And it's going to be some hard truths I think we're going to have to own up to. We need leadership to step in here and not just have an us versus them uh, mentality. And I, I'm editorializing here, and I apologize. The situation isn't going to fix itself. It, it's not going to be a, a case where we can go to the courts and say, Mr. Judge, fix it, because I think we're seeing that the Six Nations are saying, no, that we're constantly getting screwed over here. And the injection itself says, no, that you can keep building, but the First Nations people get off. That doesn't sound a good place to start to have a dialogue about reconciliation. Say, okay, we'll talk about it. Meanwhile, leave while we continue to bulldoze and build homes here. 
I mean, I'm not. I'm sorry, it doesn't have a stake in the game, but it, it frustrates me to see that this is what reconciliation looks like in the 21st century. Well, what, what most people forget too is that is a it was the Truth and Reconciliation Report that was commissioned by the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, right? And and the very first portion of that is the truth aspect. Like, like the average person, when they hear the history of what has happened to Indi- to First Nations people, usually they're sympathetic, right? They realize and they recognize that what has happened was wrong. But what, in my opinion, what we're seeing is is government officials not actually doing their homework and 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 pawning it off to probably staff that they have within their department or have at the disposal and not actually getting invested in it right it's 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 pretty simple and it's pretty easy to condemn residential schools it's pretty easy to condemn the 60 scoop it's pretty easy to condemn the boil water advisories that continuously plague first nations communities but unless they actually from a human standpoint do their homework and realize the truth that has what has happened to to indigenous people then then they'll start to realize the the distrust that indigenous people have towards canadian processes right uh, towards canadian courts for example towards the canadian government there's a reason why indigenous people do not trust this system and it's because this system has fundamentally been used to to oppress first nations people since the conception of canada right yeah i mean again it's kind of my background growing up in britain my previous career was as a historian and kind of looking at the history of ireland and or history around the world and scotland and so on everywhere the british went they imposed their legal system of course they defended it as introducing civilization to the uncivilized and all that kind of nonsense but it was a legal system that was used to further their interests and was designed to be against the interests of anybody who happened to be against them. It's a tool of the British crown that we have inherited that we're still using to govern our affairs that was not designed to be fair and equitable. It was designed to be a tool of the British crown to make them more powerful. And it's, it's ultimately that kind of point we need to get to, I think, that well, of course First Nations people don't want to go to a Canadian court because the whole thing's designed to screw them over and has been used to screw them over for the last however many hundred years. I mean, I didn't go through the Canadian education system, so I can't speak to how this stuff gets taught, but I suspect it's not taught very well. It doesn't, Roland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no surprise there. Um, a really good podcast going on on Canada land at the moment about the history of the RCMP and how that all came out of the need to pacify the West and pacify the the Metis. And really, it was a military force, not a police force first, which is why they wear red and you know those kind of things. I guess as we come to an end, if you could say kind of one simple thing to anybody who might be listening to this who who feels threatened by things like indigenous land claims and uh, first nations or, or feels that these claims are somehow wrong what would you say to them to persuade them that maybe they should listen more carefully it really starts with education, right? You have to educate yourself. You have to be mindful of the, of the histories that, that have happened to Canada. And and, and if, if the concept of Canada is too big for you, then look at the territory that you're living in. What has happened on your area? Like, I live in Niagara. There are so many things that occurred here that are applicable to what we're seeing today. So it starts with that basic education. And it also starts with reframing our minds, reprogramming our minds to understand that Indigenous people aren't people of the past, right? We often talk about residential schools and the abuses that happened at residential schools. And while that is a tragedy and travesty, um, think about what was happening to, think about what Canadians were seeing, right? Um, 
what that essentially said is that Indigenous people, First Nations people specifically, um, did not deserve the same protections. So as a, as an average person seeing residential schools being imposed, to them they were given a pass to treat, uh, given yeah, the free pass to treat Indigenous people as less than. If you're told that you're a dog and you can't consistently be called and labeled a dog, eventually you're going to start acting like a dog. But what else is going to happen is the people around you are now going to start treating you like a dog. And that's one of the things that has happened, right? Look at Six Nations. The mush hole closed in 1970. I'm, I'm relatively young. My parents are relatively young. My parents were alive during the mush hole era. What, what, what is the perception amongst the people, non-Indigenous people who live in that area? It's probably that Indigenous people are less than, and they deserve less than. And, and that's really is. We need to reprogram our mind to, to understand that Indigenous people live in your cities. I live in St. Catharines. Carl lives in Niagara Falls. We're part of your communities. We do exist, right? Um, and it, it starts about comedic, uh, creating that, that relationship with one another. Um, because if not, then 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 the world is not going to be a better place our relationships are not going to progress um what we what we see now is that the government is responds to the will of the people and if the will of the people say that it's not a priority then the government is not going to get it done justin trudeau was elected on the platform of nation to nation uh relationships and and committed to 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 curing and fixing the boil water advisories that exist in our community. And they've only gotten worse since, since he's been in power. Um, he said 2021, now it's postponed to 2022. Um, so like, I mean, where, where are Canadians when, when we need them the most? And that's, and that's really it is educate yourself and, and use, use that position of power, that position of privilege that we, that they have and, and help out indigenous people when you can, when it, when it's appropriate. I think that's probably an excellent place to end it and I hope that our listeners take that to heart and I hope that we do you know in whatever little way we can through this podcast can help that process thanks so much for joining us today I really appreciate you making the time we have a cliche on this podcast of we could talk for another hour or so it's never been more true than today so thank you so much really appreciate it thank you That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. listeners i'm christy and i'm melissa and this is buried motives where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers she said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back and that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag
Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirtbags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth.